Welcome to Origin Stories, the Immigration Policy Lab podcast that asks our team members about their journeys and work and life. I'm Duncan Lawrence, IPL's Executive Director, bringing you the minds behind the research. Today I'm joined by Vasco Yasinov, who is an IPL postdoctoral fellow. Welcome, Vasco. Thank you. So I wanted to start by, I think, what is a really pertinent question, which is, the percent of Americans that you think could identify Bulgaria on a map? Well, what an interesting question. I don't know, five? Five percent. One in 20, maybe? Okay, so I think what we should do is we should just run a little Amazon Mechanical Turk survey and yeah. see what percent of Americans can okay, identify so I, well, Bulgaria. I, I think what's more fair, what's fair, more fair is to identify the region. Can you give us... a uh, the 30-second history of Bulgaria that you learned when you were a student in Bulgaria. So I was born in in, uh, in Bulgaria in the late 80s while we were still a communist country. So um, And um, went to school there, middle school, elementary school, middle school, up until high school. And after high school, I moved to the U.S. And the point that you raised about the history that we study in in um, in Bulgaria is a very interesting one because uh, so as I mentioned just a moment ago, Bulgaria was part was a communist country for a few decades, and it turns out that um, the communist regime had changed or manipulated the history as it was taught in the in you know in schools and as it was in um, in textbooks in his history textbooks. And even though I went to school in the post-communist era, these kind of the, the narratives that they were telling back from the from the communist times still persisted, and we still learned those in schools. And a thirty-second pitch is something like Bulgaria was established in six hundred eighty-one. It's actually the oldest country in the Euro, continuously existing country in Europe. Sorry, let me say that again. It's the oldest country in Europe with the same name. So that's kind of, an, uh, I think, a fun fact. So established in 681, um, we had a country for a, for a while, for a couple of centuries. Then the Byzantine Empire took over for um, about a couple of centuries. Then we had this, what's called the Second Bulgarian Empire. And then in the late 14th century, the, the Ottoman Empire took over. And they, um, they reigned uh, uh, across Bulgaria for about... Um, for about until the late nineteenth century, and then from there it, we've had our modern Bulgarian country. So that's kind of the thirty-second rundown. Great. And to help people who may not know exactly where Bulgaria is, yeah. could you locate for us sort of Bulgaria in the context of of neighbors? Yes. So Bulgaria is situated in Eastern Europe, um, right between. So we're squeezed between. Greece on the south and Romania on the north. And on the east, we have the Black Sea. On the west, we have Serbia, uh, now called more northern Macedonia. Oh, and we also have Turkey a little bit on the southeast as well. Okay. So uh, we're not going to go all the way back to ancient history, but a bit more modern history. And so one of the things that many people know about you who are uh, at IPL 
is that you are a twin and you've got a brother. And I'm curious about what your childhood was like in Bulgaria. Um, and if you could take me through kind of a quintessential story that you share with people about twinhood growing up in Bulgaria. So throughout my life, people have often asked me, what if, what is it like to have a twin? Because you know it's not a common common thing. But my answer is always, I can't really tell you because I don't know what it's like not having a twin. So I don't have a good reference point. Um, yeah, I have a twin brother. Uh, he o- he also lives in the Bay Area. Mo- we moved here together. A quintessential story. I don't know. I don't. I can't think of a s- specific story, but just a quintessential experience is that of growing up with a twin is that you always have company and you're never lonely. So I think as a kind of, because of this, I'm really, I always need to f- be around people and I'm, I just hate being by myself and I just ha- hate being um, alone, um, even at home. I I'm, I'm always have to be surrounded by people. I think just this is a product of the way I, I was raised, I grew up in, back in Bulgaria. And so you you hate being alone, except you chose a profession that, at least traditionally, has been a very solitary enterprise. Did that play into your thought process at all when you were deciding to pursue a PhD? Well, first of all, I want to say that's why I think the IPO is such a great fit for me because in IPO we um, all basically all our projects are very collaborative and it's a very kind of vibrant team team environment. Um, which, which which fits very well with my personality. When it comes to whether I had considered the nature of the work when when I joined graduate school, I don't know. I don't think so. Actually, I wasn't. Um, I didn't really know what I was getting into when I was going into graduate school. Um, definitely hadn't researched about you know what life is like as a grad student. I don't know if I had done it otherwise. Uh, that did, definitely didn't play a role in my decision. Yeah. And when you were young, so from uh, thinking about kids and aspirations and what they want to grow up and and do, sort of at what point in your life did becoming an international migrant kind of enter into your thinking? Mm. So, yeah, I was born and raised in Bulgaria, and I had not left Bulgaria until I was maybe 18, 17 or 18. Uh, But the key moment was... I think it was year 1999 when my aunt, so my my dad's sister, um, she got she got the green card she of lottery. Uh, so she, she received the green card with her husband and my cousins. And in year 2000 they moved here. So I don't think that I made the connection, you know, uh, you know that that can potentially be um, channel through which I migrate here f- for at least a few years after that. But maybe towards middle of high school um i started thinking about visiting the u.s and um um yeah just visiting the u.s so when i was 80 i must have been 18 years old in 2006 that's when that's that's when i I first came here with my brother but that was purely that was still i think 11th grade uh still one year one more year to go in high school that was just purely for tourism uh, purposes just out of curiosity to check out what it, what what the United States is and uh, how people live here, 
And then once um, I visited, I really loved it. Um, that was here in the Bay Area, actually in the same town that I live right now in Sunnyvale. Um, and then from there, I just started, you know, strategizing and planning how I, after high school, how I can, you know, be a, an international student here. And so you brought up a, what has become in the last few years a policy that has received an enormous amount of tension in the United States, and that is the green card lottery. And so walk me through both your personal perspective. So think about the you've described your own kind of connection to that policy. And I, I'm really curious about sort of how you see, I guess, almost like a cascade effect across your family in terms of what people's lives look like beyond yours. So that's kind of the first part of my question. The second is for you to think through that policy from your economist perspective um, and and how you think about that policy detached, if you can, uh, from your own personal experience. My personal perspective is I have gained enormously and indirectly through my aunt from this green card lottery. I've received incredible opportunities, of course, one of which is being part of the the IPL organization. So um, other people having the same opportunity that I've had, uh, you know, with this program is, is, I think, important and something that we should prioritize uh, just based on my own experience. so that was the, for the first part. The second part of the econo- for the economist in me, mm, yeah. So I, I see here uh, the Bay Area is kind of you know uh, an incredibly diverse place with uh, with people from all over the world and and it's thriving economically very well. And I think you know immigrants and the diversity in immigrants, part of which comes through the, the, this diversity visa program, plays a big role. So um, I think expanding that and 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 giving opportunity to more of more people to migrate to the U.S. who would not have the opportunity this opportunity otherwise, I think is also important. Um, and there are studies showing you know the economic impact of of ethnic diversity uh, in the U.S. And uh, yeah, and it, it's a little bit uh, disheartening seeing that policy kind of being taken down little by little. So let's run run with that uh, a little bit in terms of thinking about your own own research in terms of thinking about the impact of immigration. And so a lot of your work has been around a particular topic, which is whether or not uh, immigrants that come into a country affect the wages of natives. And so can you give me kind of the Cliff Notes version of of the debate and then how you've tackled that challenge in terms of understanding the link between those two things, which is immigrants arriving and their connection to natives wages. Yeah. So the Cliff Notes version of of the debate sounds like something like uh, the following. On the one side, we have a small camp of economists which say, let's look at our most simple models of supply and demand. And this model has a very clear prediction. When you have more peoples, or in this case, when we, in this context, when you have more immigrants, uh, wages would be lower. Okay, And that's kind of a very powerful narrative because of how simple it is and how many people can understand it. Um, you draw two lines, you move one of them, um, and then you get the result. 
Um, so kind of early on, the theoretical expectations were that um, e- immigrants have a strong or have an at least negative effect on wages and employment of native workers. Uh, then a, a couple of decades um, later was this kind of economist started, okay, let's look at the data. So we have this theoretical prediction. Um, it's clear, but let's look well, what's in the data. So and there was early influential work showing that the data actually doesn't confirm this theoretical prediction. In reality, you know, things are more complicated. Um, and then, so so that was kind of well-established to some extent uh, result early on, which was contested, but still, you know, th- there are numerous studies showing, you know, overall small effects um, uh, of, of immigration and wages. So then the next step in 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 the literature was to look at why that would be. So why is our initial model wrong? And what a lot of studies show is that this initial model that I I mentioned just a minute ago is just too simple. So that's not how, you know, real labor markets operate. Um, And in reality, there are a lot of other things that change when more people come in, when, when immigrants come in. Um, so stuff like, you know, natives can change occupations, can upgrade education, stuff that like immigrants actually focus on different occupations on different tasks. So they're not all competing with each other. So I think currently um, where the literature stands and what um, my research has shown is that immigration has overall small effect on wages uh, and employment. There are s- Part, small part of the workforce can actually experience um, competition and can experience negative labor market effects. But these, the magnitudes of these effects are much smaller than what we would expect if we didn't have any data to analyze this uh, research question. Academic debates can sort of grow, um, and you found yourself certainly in a situation of being in what I would think of as an academic debate with one particular economist uh, who's from Harvard. And you entered that at sort of a stage in your career where you were in graduate school and then as a postdoc. Um, And I'm curious for you sort of what the thought process was. We always want to engage in science, which shouldn't matter sort of what the results and outcomes are, but there is this world in which we are engaged in science, but we're also operating in the realm of sort of a field that has personalities and opinions and all of those things that go with it. And so I'm curious for for other individuals who go through a PhD program and think about working on things where they may have findings that don't align with certain individuals and that can create debate what was that experience like for you? And did you find it incredibly challenging? Was it somewhat rewarding and being able to sort of be a part of this conversation um, that has largely dominated? There's this academic debate, but then there's this huge debate all throughout receiving nations about the impact of immigration. And it's an area in which you have uh, an enormous amount of expertise. And so I'm really curious about that experience for you as a graduate student uh, going through that process. Yeah. Yeah, so um, to give a little bit of background, uh, so back in graduate school, maybe second or third year, of maybe second year of my uh, PhD program, I started working on uh, a project about this labor market uh, effective immigration, and maybe a year in or two years in, uh, I was preparing my 
dissertation prospectus. Um, and then a paper came out by a very uh, high-profile economist at Harvard, which you mentioned, which had done a very similar analysis than the one that I was doing, uh, working on, finding uh, very different results. So finding um, that in a certain episodes in U.S. history, refugees to the U.S. really hurt um, native workers, but not only really hurt native workers, but the magnitude of this effect was just enormous is like is way out of you know what previous studies uh, had uh, have estimated um so it's kind of very surprising finding yes and then so without planning i just found myself uh, towards the middle of my graduate school career you know in this midst of this kind of academic debate about um about this episode and this experience has been challenging has been rewarding but overall, it actually has been very positive uh, on my end. So I always, right from the beginning, I always thought that I don't have anything to lose, really. I was just a young graduate student. I don't, I, I didn't have any reputation that I'd build. I didn't have, you know, a series of, of studies behind my back. I was, and, and actually, so, I, so overall, I enjoyed the ride. There was a lot of media attention. There was a lot of... Uh, stuff going on on Twitter uh, uh, by the academic community discussing the episodes, the pros and cons. Um, in, a, in the media coverage, there are a lot of negative comments about my work, a lot of some positive comments, but I, I, it never really bothered me. I think overall it was a positive experience. Um, I'm, I'm sure I had, I've lost sleep a couple of nights of it, but but overall, yeah, overall, I always thought that I don't have too much to lose, so I just try to enjoy the ride, and it was. It was a fun one. I, I think very few, especially graduate students, very few graduate students get to experience this and and uh, um, you know be part of this kind of intellectual debate. And so, I think one of the things about um, being an academic, being a researcher, is we often are able to pick the things we want to do and learn. And so, I'm curious, sort of, what's the thing? that two years ago, almost now, that when you came to IPL, you didn't know anything about, that you now have have much more knowledge, have learned about, find fascinating? Is there something that's come up in the work that you've done in the last couple of years where you never would have expected to be sort of immersed in a particular question or topic that's yeah. new to you and and you want to share with the world? Yeah. So I think this came out, came out earlier when you said that, you know, in economics... When we talk about immigration, we're basically we're mostly talking about one of two things, and it's mostly really one thing. Really, the main thing is how immigrants um, impact wages and employment for native workers. And the second thing is so there's a smaller literature on seems to be also of interest to some economists about who selects to migrate. Um, but I, th that's kind of a small thing. Really, the big chunk of work, academic work in economics, is about the labor market consequences of, of foreign-born workers. The thing that I learned at IPL that pro that changed my career more, more most profoundly is to broaden this view. Really, as simple as it sounds. Um, sort of to look at you know how you know to look at the economic well-being of the immigrants themselves, um, kind of broad and stuff like, I mean, we have a study in which we look at um, whether immigrants relocate in pursuit of health benefits, which for me, which is not something that an economist would come naturally to, so this research question. 
Um, okay, so you brought up something that I find uh, really intriguing. What was sort of your experience going to community college, then transitioning out of community college? How do you view community colleges, given your own personal experience from that? And then what's the role of community colleges in helping, whether it's immigrant populations, um, first generation getting access to what we think of as higher education? Yeah, so I I went to Dianza College, which is a college in Cupertino nearby uh, here. I spent there three years from 2007 to 2010, and I had a great experience. So that was um, right after moving to the U.S., and it's the first time that I was, you know, part of a very big international community, which is what the population here was, um, and it still is. Besides that, uh, one of the great things about Danza College is there is a is there is a very big international student community. I think around that time was about two thousand students from all over the world. So you know, growing up in Bulgaria was this kind of closed um, country in which we really didn't have a lot of foreigners, and especially in in part of the Bulgaria that I grew up in, in a small town, we definitely didn't have any foreigners really. Uh, so, you know, be, being part of this large international community was very rewarding experience for me. Um, and and to this day, I still cultivate and keep, uh, you know, friendships with many actually people that I met at the Anza College. Um, and of, uh, on a, the second biggest advantage was, so, be, so besides, you know, the high academic standards and high teaching um Quality at the Anza College, the 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 in the reason I'm a big advocate for community college is really the low fees. So coming out of from abroad, you know, attending a state or a UC college in California would cost about I think thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, and that's just the tuition fees. Where uh, the community college fees are just an order of magnitude lower. Um, so yeah, so I mean, if it wasn't if it was not for the community college system, I would probably not have come to the US so yeah I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to policymakers who have uh, come up with this and set up this uh, the system uh, the community college and then I transferred to UC San Diego and that also that experience also worked out very well for me it was it was kind of a smooth transition the the teaching quality at the answer were so high that I was I was definitely prepared for the course, the upper division courses in San Diego. So yeah, overall, it was a great experience for me. It was the first time I was exposed to you know people from all over the world, and it worked out very well for me. Um, very grateful for that. And so it is becoming election season here, or has been for two years now, approximately in the U.S. Um, and for you, kind of, what are the markers when you look at? the U.S. democratic system um, in terms of kind of differences or things that you pick out that strike you as being unique. Um, I'm just curious on your perspective, having grown up in one system uh, and moved to another and sort of whether or not that that has a huge effect on things or because you're kind of got a global lens 
um, you think about it sort of through that global lens rather than your own experience. What's surprising to me is kind of the inflexibility of this two-party system in the sense that you need to choose between the Republican or the Democratic Party. And if you don't like either of them for any case, for for whatever reason, you're not you're not left with any good options. So uh, growing up in Bulgaria where the political system was very different, um, we have a lot of parties that come and go and and... And there's a lot more competition, political competition. I don't know if that's a term. Maybe I just invented it. It is. No, oh, it is definitely. It is a term that's used among political scientists all oh, the time. Yeah. Oh wow! So maybe I was born. You you should have been a political scientist, so, not an economist. Yeah. No. So that's so that's that would be the main thing that I would point out. Um, I just wish we had more choice in you know in choosing candidates, and I think a lot of people can relate with that. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. It's definitely not the thing I would have thought that uh, I would have heard from you. And so, yeah, I think one of the things that political scientists do an enormous amount is think about why we have single, multi, uh, dual party systems and how you create institutional structures to ensure that uh, people do have choice or lack thereof. Um, uh, And a lot of it has to do with the voting systems that are in place Um, in terms of getting proportional versus uh, sort of majoritarian mm-hmm. representation. Yeah. Um, and that is something that people spend a lot of time thinking about uh, and trying to change, frankly, as well. Okay, let me let me ask you one quick last question here. Knowing what you know about immigration and immigration policy, if you, for instance, had a lever uh that you could pull in Bulgaria for a policy change that was related to immigration, what would that lever be? Yeah, so I think the the problems uh, related to immigration in Bulgaria are not so much in policy as it is in in the sentiment actually among the population, and changing that would be more di- more difficult. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's my answer. I mean, I would love for Bulgaria to receive more refugees, but really, it's a problem of um, you know, attitudes and how do we change attitudes? What I don't know what the literature says about that. That they're really hard to change. They're, they're really, yeah, yeah, unsurprisingly. Um, yeah, so if I would change anything, it would not be policy. It would be, you know, shift the attitudes even a little bit. And I think the the policy change will follow after that. Okay, that you might get some disagreement about among political scientists, whether attitudinal change actually well, me, results in policy change. But that's a totally different topic. Let me remain hopeful and positive about it. I like that approach. Vasco, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for taking the time and speaking with us on Origin Stories. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story with you. That's our conversation for today. To learn more about our international team and the work we do, or to check out past origin stories, come visit us at immigrationlab.org. Until next time, this is Duncan Lawrence saying thanks for listening. (laughs) 